Zach Helfand is a writer at The New Yorker and editor of Talk of the Town over there. He was gracious enough to spend some time with me recently and share his writer's journey, some sage life advice he got from Bill Plasky, his thoughts on the word myriad, and ultimately he told me about how Hank Azaria was his first golf story. So thanks for joining us. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So how did it, so this week we're getting back into live golf. So that's if you if you haven't if you, if you haven't tuned in before, go back, uh, find a previous episode about myself. I talk about a guy that I met at a golf tournament last year who I actually met at summer camp years and years and years ago, and he is joining me now, Zach Helfan. We we bumped into each other at the live golf event. We don't need to retell that. You can go listen to divots and pivots and find out how really it was. I'd say probably the highest famous moment in my career to date to be recognized by an acclaimed writer such as yourself. Uh, but what were you, how did, how did you get on, how did the New Yorker end up sending a guy to cover live golf? And what was that experience like? So that was something that I had pitched just for kind of the, the magazine. Uh, we have a weekly pitch meeting in which you bring two or three ideas. Uh, it could be anything. And and usually it's supposed to be for you know someone else or just kind of for you know like a you know here's a basket of ideas and take one um, and everyone goes around so you sit in a table and you pitch you pitch the editor David Remnick um, so I had been kind of fascinated by Liv this was shortly after Mickelson made the comments and I was just like man you just don't hear people talking with this much candor um, scary motherfucker and, is what he said I'll say it that's fine yeah the scary yeah. motherfucker comments look them up. It was great, and 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 so I I had pitched it, and they said, why don't why don't you go ahead and do it, and and we just went from there. All right, where'd you go from there? <laughs> uh, that's a so so I I, I kind of went in not knowing all that much, like I wasn't following it that closely. I I followed it generally. I knew kind of there was this Saudi league that was maybe in the works, but I wasn't obsessively reading about it. So I I came edit with more or less a, a blank slate. Um, and so just started reading a lot. Uh, first thing I always do is just make a ton of calls. Um, so, you know, I called up the live people and I said, Hey, I'm going to write this and I'd love to go come see it. I'd love to talk to you. I uh, called the PGA people, uh, told them that, you know, the tour told them I was writing this, um, ended up going to the live event in Bedminster, uh, went to the, uh, PGA tour, uh, championship down in Atlanta. Um, and went to the uh, the Boston, quote unquote Boston, uh, in, in Massachusetts, the live event, uh, and almost we we had kind of a hard run date, um, but but uh, Majid Al Soror, who who uh, at the time was was one of the executives of running live, uh, invited me out to, to the uh, the Saudi tournament, um, and uh, we, we were we were running the mag we were running the piece in the magazine that week the week of the tournament so i couldn't go and get it in um but i was i was a little bummed to, to not be able to but, but that <laughs> was, was the tournament i think jetta or maybe it might have been yeah exactly i think yeah i think it was jetta um and he said we'll fly you out you know we'll put you up we'll show you around and i said i can't let you do that you know we have to pay our own way we, we don't want to be beholden to anyone um but i you know i love we, we, we'd pay for me to go out there and and i would love for you to show me around and and uh <laughs> never happened and i i think the uh the opportunity has passed because they weren't <laughs> they weren't super pleased with some of the things that they had said uh that we ended up printing 
Well, you said you came to it with a with a clean slate, and I was raising my hand because I was, and still am, one of the guys who just consumes this golf. It's kind of like a you know, it's a passion. It's part of my DNA. And coming to it with a clean slate. Quick question, side question: Do you carry a handicap? Or are you a golfer yourself? I'm a golfer, but not enough of one okay, to I just, even. I wanted have a to handicap. know for context because when you say clean slate, uh, you know, good lord, we're. Handsome Air Force Base is right over there. So every once in a while, a truck comes by, a plane goes over, something that just like shakes our building. It's crazy. So what is something? What is something that you learned about the whole process, and what was maybe your big takeaway? And you you, you grinned there. I, you don't necessarily have to say what what made them upset, but what were some key things that you learned or takeaways about the game of golf and, and maybe international relations and how when those two start crossing over. It does affect things, no matter how hard we try to put our blinders on. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a, a lot of takeaways. Um, the thing that made them upset was, <laughs> I think, there was one in particular where where the executive said that, uh, you know, they wanted the, the masters and all the majors to ban them so they could start their own majors. Uh, and then they had to walk it back and then they released a statement. I think that was the thing that, that uh, <laughs> upset them. Uh, as far as takeaways, I think... One big one was that we we think of these guys as as athletes and competitors, and a lot of them are. And I think all of them, regardless, really want to win badly. You don't you don't get to be this good without having a really high competitive drive. Uh, but you also you know you forget that this is business, and for a lot of them. Uh, and it varies. There's kind of a different level of of how much people care about winning only and business only, and there's a spectrum. And for a lot of guys, you know, it, it's 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 really you know the 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 golf likes to portray itself in, in this very kind of pure light. Um, and I think for a lot of guys, and I think the thing that's been jarring for fans is to see kind of the the greed and open kind of grabbing of of opportunities without regard for what is actually good for the sport or what is actually good to watch uh, is unsettling. And I don't really blame guys. You know, if someone threw $200 million at me, uh, I would I would do a lot of things, you know? Um, but the, the kind of just to see the corrupting influence of, of money so out in the open I think was jarring. And that's, that's kind of the, the, if there's a geopolitical angle on this, I mean, there's the specifics of the Saudis, which we talked about uh, before and, and what they're after, but, but I think just kind of seeing the shameless use of, of money and resources, this openly uh, is unusual. They, you know, they were, they're pretty upfront about what they want. They want to spend a ton of money and they want to take over a golf league and, and get the best golfers to play for them and make people feel friendly things about Saudi Arabia. I, and by the way, yeah, go back to divots and pivots, find our episode with Zach. He was, he dove into it a little bit deeper and it was, it's, it's fascinating because now, now that we're this far removed, the, uh, almost coughed right into your ear. The, the focus for me really has shifted away from the macro international relations. Where's the money coming from? What are the morality questions? And then of course, on the heels of full swing on Netflix and we got to see in you know, articles like yourself or your like yourself, articles like yourself, writers like yourself putting out those pieces. 
it peels it back a little bit more. And what you said up front is what I've been preaching the whole time. There's CEOs. Every single one of them is the CEO of My Name Inc. And they do have teams and they have responsibilities. And so, like you just said, in a business sense, if somebody comes in front of you with more capital than you've ever been able to dream of in your life, and you're thinking, you know, Jack Nicholas said it. He goes, some of these guys made that decision to play a little less, get more money up front. And he didn't even say it in a bashing manner. He finally came out and was like, I, I, I get it. He, I mean, he didn't say he respects it. He said he understands it. And he goes, and then there's the guys who are going to do it this way. And that's where my heart belongs. He goes, and, I, and he said what you said. I don't like what this has done to that. Now, some of the players have come out recently, like Rory saying, of course, there's been some positive you know, change. Like that's what happens after disruption. It doesn't necessarily qualify or excuse the manner of the disruption you know it's kind of like saying after a major catastrophe strikes a community you know we got this world-class you know center that they rebuilt in the space i'm like i see what you're doing with the silver linings but let's not say we were happy for the catastrophe like couldn't we have gotten there in a different way so I, i i love that you pointed that out early which is we might see this from our own competitive nature of like i'm a golfer i like to go out and compete with my buddies totally different. Am I risking my, my life? Not physically. I mean, like financially, financial security, you know, set up for generations. Brooks Kepka was talking about that, but it was really telling recently with Cameron Smith, the defending champion at the players last week. And I know this isn't a golf show, but we are going to, we're going to pivot to another golf topic here in a second. Somebody asked him, what are you going to be doing this week? And it, first time I'd seen it on his face, a, a look that $125 million can't buy, can't, can't wipe away. And it it came out. He was at the little nine-hole golf course down the street playing with his buddies the day that everybody teed off. And all I could think to myself was, Liv, as you pointed out, where they've gone wrong is they they do have this takeover mentality. And it's not going to happen because you can buy some players, you can buy some locations, you can put up some trophies. You can't buy legacy and tradition. It takes time. doesn't mean they won't get there. Who knows? Maybe they will. Maybe the team golf thing will get there. But what upset me up front and what upsets me now is there are the people who believe that the shine of the PGA Tour and the tradition and the legacy was going to follow those players. You know, it's kind of kind of like eh, the the sport is bigger than them. When we see it, we've seen it recently. We'll see what happens this week in Tucson. But have you been following it much? Like, did this did did getting I guess embedded did get it going on this kind of story? Did it tickle your golf fancy at all, or are you back back to it's a big world out there? It did, it did. I have to say, it, it did, and, and yes. it's funny because because like I I can't like the takeaway was like this is a circus. These guys are all greedy and out for their own things, and they're all sniping at each other, and they're all kind of hypocrites. Nevertheless, yeah, I'm watching Riviera, and and um I'm, I'm I'm riveted. Uh, I, I, I talked with Max Homa for, for a little bit at the, at the player, at the champion, at the tour championship. And I, I, I was pulling for him and, and I was kind of, I was kind of, uh, heartbroken for him when he lost. Um, and, 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 and that's a guy who's like, I, I know that if I got offered this much money, like if I know a number I'm going to, it's going to be really tough to turn down and I'm going to turn it down because I think I like the com- competition and the the tradition and the things that I grew up rooting for more. And you can kind of see that when he loses, but it does like, he was kind of the perfect, honest encapsulation of like, what are your priorities and how do you actually think it through? And he was a guy who, who, who said, I just don't want to know the number. So I can't feel that bad. And so my, my wife's not going to be like, you turned down a hundred million dollars. Are you kidding me? Uh, but I, I am, I watch, I, I, I don't watch live. I just don't find it a very good product. Um, I do find it an interesting Twitter 
product. Like I follow Alan Shipnuck tweeting about the cute uniforms and Pat Perez and Ian Poulter getting mad about him saying that they have cute uniforms. Like that's, it's, you know, it's good content uh, as they say, but uh, the, the, the tour I've, and maybe because I know the personalities a little bit more now. Um, and I just think it's a really interesting place they're at right now where you have like five guys who are just really, really good. And no one is really, you know, is Rom better than Scheffler, better than Rory? They, like any one of them, you can make an argument for. And I think it's kind of an interesting time. And I golf. do make those it's every week on Divots and Pivots, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. folks. <clears throat> but I really could sit here and chop it up about live because I, I, I too follow on the Twitter sphere. I follow online. Uh, I mostly email them like a couple weeks ago. I noticed it was the week of their first tournament. I went to their website and the team's page was down. Shot them a quick note. Five hours later, we're, we're live on our little show. They still hadn't fixed the team's page. And I was using that as kind of a microcosm of ask any successful you know, coach, do the little things, take care of the little things. If you take care of the little things, everything else will kind of fall into place. And so I, I do think it's, a, it's safe to chirp at them, which is you went out and bought Dave Faraday, which I miss David Faraday. That's one of the only reasons I was sad that he went. I love his style. But you went out and bought him. You bought these players and this, that, and the other. But again, you didn't buy the product that they used to be a part of. And when you realize that it does take a bigger team and machine and legacy and years and, and loyalty, like you're talking about with Max Home, I don't want to know the number because I'm going to say no and, and no matter what. And then I just don't want the other problems that, that could create. So I love, welcome to the golf culture. We're, we're very happy to have you. It's, it's a wonderful place. Um, it can be just like any other grouping of humans. You got a handful of jerks, a handful of like angels and saints, and then the rest of us trying to, was trying to make our way on the back nine, but live golf is not your first golf story, which I didn't know until recently. I, I would have called this a fill in the blank with the man's name story. And you're like, Oh, that was my first golf story. So what was your first golf story? And was it, this was for the New Yorker as well, right? Yeah. It's my first New Yorker golf story, I guess. I, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later. I was a sports writer previously and covered some golf. Actually, no, let's stuff. get into that now because I'm awful at going back. Because once we get into these stories, I'm not going to go back. Let's pause <laughs> real quick. I dove right into Liv. How did you, I even said like, you know, how did you kind of decide I want to be a writer? And then you end up writing for Liv Golf or woof, woof, edit that out. It's turn <laughs> to cut that. You end up writing about Liv Golf, but let's back it up a little bit. Take us on the quick, uh, the writer's journey for Zach. So um, I, I, I Throughout my whole life, I was always a huge Michigan fan. Loved Michigan football. Uh, probably at summer camp was probably wearing the same hat until I beat it into the ground. Uh, ended up going to school there. And uh, I had always liked writing. Um, always thought I was good at it. Um, and so I, did, I signed up for the school newspaper, thinking, you know, maybe it'd be fun to write about sports. You know, I'm not good enough to be the running back on the team. Maybe, maybe I could, I could write about the football team. Um, and I ended up really liking it. I, I, I was on the newspaper there uh, for all four years. I was the sports editor um, along with a buddy of mine, Everett, um, and uh, covered the football team, covered the hockey team, went to Alaska, you know, to cover, cover the hockey team. Uh, and, and I remember, um, I, I remember my freshman year kind of having a, conversation with my girlfriend in her dorm room like hey i think i really like this and maybe maybe this is what i should do um and you know it, it was kind of you know that th there's that like moment that i could point to when i was like oh yeah this this is what i'll do um so th there's no journalism program at michigan and i don't think i would have studied it anyway uh 
I took a lot of English classes, but I was a finance major. Uh, the idea being, uh, if if journalism doesn't work out, you know, the industry is really bad. Uh, you know, this is what I want to do. If that doesn't work out, I'm just going to go make a lot of money. Uh, so <laughs> I haven't had to use it yet, uh, but uh, that was the fallback. It's like, you know, I, I had like the, the PGA path, except much less lucrative and the live path. It's like, I'm going to do what I love and, you know, maybe I stink at it. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll just sell out. Uh, my bag. Yeah. So all throughout college, I, I had internships uh, at little newspapers, little and progressively bigger newspapers. I started out at the Trentonian, which is a weekly tabloid in New Jersey, uh, where I live. Uh, it's about an hour away. I would go cover Little League softball and baseball, basically, uh, for the whole summer. I would, uh, I would interview eight-year-olds <laughs> about, about and, and it's funny, you know, eight years old, you're not that far removed from like just learning how to talk, right? It's like, you know, you're like six years away from that. Uh, not a long time. So, you know, they, they'd be nervous. They wouldn't really say anything. I'd have to keep a box score and then run finding McDonald's to, to get Wi-Fi. Uh, to file my story and the box score and the quotes and everything. Um, but that was where my first golf story was. I, I covered um, a FedEx Cup tournament in, in New Jersey. Uh, and I think that's maybe the, one of the only tournaments that get interrupted by an earthquake and a, tor- and a hurricane. Uh, they had ended early for a hurricane. And there was a mini earthquake, which has never happened in New Jersey. I think Jim Furyk was in the media tent. And in the transcript, there's like little brackets. It's like paused for earthquake. There's a little shake and everyone looked around like, what's going on? Uh, So I was there. I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was at the Baltimore Sun. uh, And then uh, after I graduated, I got an internship at the LA Times, uh, all all sports writing, and uh, and got hired on after the internship in LA. That's dope. When you were out in LA, what, what time period was that? Give sports fans a reference. What were you covering in the LA uh, arc of sports history? So I got there in 2014. Um, so the Dodgers were getting really good. The Lakers were pretty bad. Uh, Kobe retired while I was out there and had his 81-point finale, uh, which is still it's crazy i was actually in a hotel in hollywood uh california i was out there for work and i remember watching that at the hotel bar i it's one of the only times what i've experienced this i lived in an apartment complex in santa monica we had the windows and doors open all the time because santa Santa monica Monica, yeah why not (laughs) uh and it, it was it was you could hear everyone cheering like as he got to like 50 and above it's like you know, just it was like surround sound. Like everyone was just kind of going crazy and transfixed. Crying. Yeah. Oh, it, it was all right. So, yeah. so you were out there for Kobe, which are Kobe, right. the Dodgers. Um, uh, oh, the Donald Sterling stuff was happening when mm-hmm. I was uh, when I was an intern. Uh, there was always something going on in LA. It's sports. LA. There's always. I mean, uh, the Rams were coming. Uh, I covered. I covered. I started out. I mean, I would help out in the Dodgers and stuff like that. Um, but I covered mainly colleges. So I did uh, UCLA basketball. I did USC basketball. And, and the big beat, you know, kind of my, my main job was USC football. Um, so I covered, they won the Rose Bowl, I think maybe the first year I was on, first or the second Mike year I was Williams on the beat. Um, what's that? Was that like the Mike Williams team? That was the uh, Sam Darnold uh, team. Uh, they beat Penn State in like an amazing Rose Bowl. Um, 
so covering things like that final fours uh, that was that was the main job colleges and then kismet the stars align east coast comes calling brings you back do you ever miss living out west a little bit yeah i think i'm more a new york guy and if i had to choose between the two i choose new york but i mean there's a lot to miss about la the tacos miss about la the weather uh the mountains uh the the lack of winters although they got as much snow as we did here this year um, we uh, there was a camp fling of mine that went to school in Santa Barbara and I went out to visit her and like standing on the beach and then you can turn around and see mountains and you can like still see parts where there might be a little bit of, a little bit of white on top and it's just it's kind of a surreal feeling I visited my uncle in San Diego a couple of years ago and when I asked him he left he left Michigan he grew up in St. Joseph Michigan left it drove down to Arizona State graduated kept driving He's like, then I ran out of room, so I just stayed in San Diego. He bounced around. He went up to Seattle and Atlanta for a bit, but he's been in San Diego for probably 50 of his 80 years. And when I when I got out there, and I was like, why? And he just went like this, just pointed to the sky. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, well, what's the weather like in February? I was out in there in July, and he just goes, he's like, it's going to be 55 to 75 every day for the rest of my life. And I was like, all right, you know what? That's that's pretty fair. It's pretty amazing. I would I would ride my bike to the beach and I would bring a New Yorker, you know, before I was working there, I would just bring the New Yorker on Sunday and, and, uh, and read it on the beach. And it's, there, there are worse ways to spend the day. I found it was too pleasant. I, I, you know, it's, it's like every day is the same and it's so nice. It's easy to get kind of complacent with everything. Cause you're, you're, you know, you're pretty content and satisfied. It's hard not to be. Yeah. I'm on weather watch right now. We're supposed to have a winter storm coming through here tomorrow, but I got a flight at 8am and there's this like weird line that just changed everything from snow to rain right around Boston. But back to your stories of the New Yorker, you were sitting there. Were you like taking pictures and sending them like to build a portfolio of like, what a great, what a great fan I am of the New Yorker. No, I'm just kidding. How did you get to the New Yorker? How was that experience kind of applying and getting there? And then take us up to your first golf story with them. So the New Yorker was always the dream. Um, I, 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 I thought I wanted to be a sports writer my entire life. The industry, I mean, particularly sports writing has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, and also just wasn't doing exactly the kind of writing I wanted to do. I think I, I realized I wanted to do a little bit more magazine writing. Um, I, maybe I realized this subconsciously, but when I'm, when I w- was writing sports, it was a lot of kind of melodrama. I think it's like, you kind of have to, sports is, it's frivolous and, and you kind of have to, uh, justify yourself when there are people writing about, you know, on the Metro desk and on the national desk and international writing, you know, things that have real consequence. And, and I think my instinct was to kind of like puff up the consequence. And I think I realized that I'm not that, like I'm not a you know, super serious guy, uh, a, you know, a drama guy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a wise ass. I, I, I like to be sure. funny. Um, and I don't think I realized that at the time, but I think that's kind of what I was gravitating toward. More importantly, um, my girlfriend, the one from the dorm room at Michigan, uh, was in New York and I was in LA uh, for about four years. I knew we were, it. Yep. Uh, so I would not have left the LA Times uh, were that not the case or were she to come to LA. But uh, she didn't. And so we were each kind of looking for jobs in, in different cities. Um, I had a friend of a friend who had just left the New Yorker's fact-checking department. So New Yorker has this giant fact-checking department. Yeah. Uh, it was 16 people at the time. It's like 30 people now. And you just go through every single line, every word of every story, uh, of, you know, for sometimes for weeks and, and make sure everything is, is 
is correct, accurate. God, yeah. If you've ever uh, seen true. season two of the newsroom, you know why. Yeah. Uh, so he had just left, and 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 uh, he was a kind of a sports guy. His name is Reeves Weideman. Um, he he's written lots of things now, but he knew sports and would write sports and and uh, would when there were sports stories would check sports. And the New Yorker, the New Yorker's fact checking department was is, is extremely diverse in terms of expertise and interests and um, different bases of knowledge, uh, languages, you know, there's like probably 10, 12 different languages spoken. Um, so we could call sources all over the world and talk to them in their language. Um, but there, there are not many sports people. Uh, so that was my in is, uh, you know, they needed someone who spoke sports, as, as my old boss liked to say. Uh, you know, they had Spanish and, and Mandarin and Japanese and French, but they needed a guy who spoke sports. Uh, so, so I, I, I interviewed with them and kept bugging them and eventually, uh, got the job offer. And it was, it was, you know, it was kind of hard taking a staff writing job at the LA times to go to a fact checking job. A lot of people are like, what the hell is fact checking? This is what I imagined. (laughs) And why are you leaving this? And that seems like a bad idea, but it was kind of, I mean, one, I was going to be with my girlfriend and my wife, uh, and, uh, the other thing is it was kind of a bet on myself. Uh, you know, the New Yorker is one of the few places that's doing well and making money and growing and doing ambitious things still. Um, and uh, I, that's where I want to be. And that was kind of the kind of writing I wanted to do. And it's really hard to get in there or anywhere when you're just kind of a stranger. And so I figured I could go in and work hard and write and write well enough that hopefully, you know, I'd be able to write more and give me writing assignments and I'd be able to be a writer. Um, and, and I got a piece of advice before I left by, by Bill Plaschke, uh, the columnist at the, at the LA times, yeah. uh, who's, who's a great guy and very wise. And he was like, you got to go in. I know you want to write because you got to go in and do the fact checking job and do it as well as you can for months until you even pitch anything. And I did, and I ended up really liking it. And I learned a ton. It's like amazing training. It's the best journalism school around. Um, cause you just de, you, you deconstruct these amazing reporters and these amazing writers work. You say, how did you get this? And how did you weave this into this? And what's your argument here? And, and how are you getting information out of people and how are you approaching people? So um, when you say and, fact checker, it's not necessarily, you know, just double checking stats. It's much more of making sure these stories for, I mean, when I say poke holes and I don't mean holes in accuracy, it could be accuracy. It could be understanding. It could be context. It could be reasoning. It could, that, that's what you're, you're kind of pointing out there. It's not just straight up like, a, you know, he had this year wrong here. It might be, might be much more of everything you're saying is factually accurate, but I still don't grasp what you're getting at or where you're coming from. Exactly. The, the, uh, we do the years too. We do the spelling, but yeah. Outside of that, cause I think that was, okay, well, I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but at least you got the year right. No, 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 no. If, if everything's right, it, it's your job to go, wait a minute. If everything's right and I'm not getting it, like what am I missing? Or and, and maybe the writer, cause I used to say when I was a teacher, middle school students, you know, do we have a study guide? No, the best way for you to understand if you know something is teach it to a friend. So like what you're saying is, you know, trying to break it down and make sure that it's being understood the way that the writer intends. I'll give an example of this. Um, uh, I worked on a few pieces by a writer named Ben Taub. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing reporter, amazing writer. He's like a year older than I am. He's, he's, he's young. Uh, he won a Pulitzer a few years ago um, for a story that I was one of the fact checkers on. Um, a, a story after that, um, 
uh, he, he basically found that this um, a refugee from Iraq um, had been framed for a variety of political reasons uh, as, as a, a terrorist um, and was jailed and was going to be deported back to Iraq um, for a murder. I think it was a murder that he didn't commit um, where he was going to be immediately executed. Like people wanted him dead there. Um, and it was a totally innocent guy. And, and generally when you are reporting something, you kind of lay out facts and, and it's, you don't want to be, you try, sometimes often you don't want to be categorical. Um, you don't want to say, this is true. This is false. This is what we know. This is the facts that we've compiled. And this is the picture that it paints as a whole. But, you know, to just say like, this is corrupt is, is, you know, you, you want to just lay out what you know. In this case, um, this guy was facing imminent deportation and death. And then felt, I think, justifiably that it was important that we say this guy is categorically innocent of what they are accusing him of. Um, and so he uh, it compiled lots of evidence, but it was up to, to me and the other fact checker to go through and, and test it out. So we, we called up all the sources. Um, we, we, you know, part of it was he couldn't have gone from this place to this place in the time frame that they said he did. And, you know, there's a CIA operative who, who kind of provided background on, on what like the situation on the ground was. I mean, like this guy, in order to get from here to here would not only have to drive really, really fast, but it would have to pass like 15 terrorist checkpoints, which no one passes. And it's just, you know, impossible for anyone to get there. Um, it's things like that. It's, it's, you know, you, you want to call experts who can speak to, um, speak to kind of the claims that someone is making. We call everyone who's in a piece, uh, everyone, you know, if Bud is mentioned, even if the reporter didn't talk to you, you're going to get a call from a fact checker. But then also you want to call outside experts who could kind of speak to some of the claims that the person is making so you could, you could test it and, and hone it. At, I mean, at times you're, it's almost, last week I interviewed my best friend who, who's a defense attorney in Cobb County, Georgia. And it's kind of the same kind of thing where as a lawyer, you got to show, not tell. It's got to just say like, I can't tell you that my client is innocent or I can't tell you that this story is true or false. What I got to do is just kind of show you what we've seen. And hopefully the way that we show it, it's laid out in a manner that you're going to draw the same conclusion we are. That's heavy. I actually know, I, I know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I know the name that you're talking about. And I'm pretty familiar with those, with a story around that time. I'm going to end up looking it up after this because, I mean, that is the kind of stuff. That's really cool. You know, congratulations to you for being on that team for that piece. I mean, I'm sure there's a, you're, you are a humble man and I'm sure there's much bigger uh, things that we could uncover and I'd love to. So let's start with your first piece now that you're at the New Yorker. And I, I, I was like, listen. If you haven't watched the show Brockmire, you're missing out on life. It, 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 the show itself is hilarious. It's dark. It's funny. It's deep. It's smart. Uh, you know, and it's all these things. But why did you end up talking to Hank Azaria? So um, I am now uh, my, my my job at the magazine now is as I'm one of the editors of the Talk of the Town. Uh, the Talk of the Town is at the for the beginning of the magazine, it's it's shorter kind of stories. Most magazine pieces are going to be like 5,000, 10,000 words. These are 800 words, short, um, a very particular tone. Um, there's kind of a jolliness, a mischievousness where we're, we're, you know, tongue in cheek a lot of the times just uh, having fun. You know, it, it's just kind of pure fun. Um, so um, Hank is, I think Hank Azaria's people had approached us saying, you know, this is the last season of Brockmire. 
um, you know, would you be interested in, in interviewing him? Um, and, and the thing that talk does uh, is we don't do, do straight interviews. You know, we just, we don't sit down with someone and say, here, tell me this, this, and this. Um, it, it's supposed to be kind of a, a scene, uh, uh, something fun. So um, I decided <laughs> to take him uh, mini golfing. Uh, we went up in Westchester. Uh, I drove out there and uh, we met at a batting cage and mini golf place. And we just went mini golfing because Brock Meyer's about, he's an announcer. Um, so we thought it'd be fun to get him in a, in a, you know, a sports setting. Uh, so we played some mini golf. I think I'm not positive about this. I think I won. And uh, then we hit up the batting cages afterward. I didn't write about the batting cages, but we just took a couple hacks because uh, he's a baseball guy. I love baseball. Um, and, and that was the day. So that was my first, that was my first golf story for the New Yorker. Did he, was he, did he ask about you at all? Like, what was it, what was he like? I mean, obviously he was there. Uh, I mean, very, very common story, right? His PR people reached out. We want to get some exposure, tell the stories. And I love it. It's like, well, we're not just going to sit you down in the studio. Do you want to go mini golfing with our boy Zach here? <laughs> so what was he like? I, I don't, I don't remember it super vividly. Um, I remember him, he was a nice guy. Um, very kind of normal, uh, down to earth. Uh, I think asked, asked about me, but I think also recognized that like, you know, it, you could be polite and ask about me a lot, but I got to get you talking as much as possible. You know, I'm just trying to gather stuff. So I think people who are kind of pros like me just realize like, you ask questions, you be polite, you try to be a normal person, even, even if you're kind of shy, just like let, <laughs> let the reporter do their work. He's and, done a uh, million interviews yeah. in his life and he knows exactly how this goes. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that jumped out at me, and actually this wasn't a story that I saw when I was, when I was doing more you know, digging into your past. No, when, uh, but it's just something that came out of your mouth and it was an experience. I'm curious if you'd unpack it for me. I hate that phrase. I don't know why it just came out. If you tell us about what it was like meditating with common and, and who is common for the uninitiated. So common, he's a rapper, kind of like a seminal rap figure. Um, people more recently might know him from Selma. Uh, he did the, the part of the soundtrack for, for Selma, the movie. That was really good. Um, so, um, I had, this is when I first started writing for the talk of the town section, uh, before I was, I was one of the editors. Um, I was still trying to f figure out what a, what a talk story was. And, uh, I, I, I saw that there was this meditation center, which at its center had this giant crystal, like a you know, very very expensive crystal that was supposed to give off like good energy. And I was like, this this sounds funny. Maybe what if we do a talk on this? And uh, the person who was in my job at the time, a woman named Tyler Foggett, um, who is now a senior editor at the magazine, uh, was like, that sounds like a good setting, but not like a full story. And a day or two after that. Commons people again approached us like, "Hey, he's got a new album out. Uh, you interested in interviewing him?" And we said yes. And it was all about self care. Uh, so I'm like, "What if we go to this meditation center?" And I didn't know this, but he he was. I mean, it was about self care, but his, his the album. But he was super into meditation. Like he came, he had like you know like herbs in his pocket. What, what's it? You wave around and clear out a space. He's like sage. Sage, exactly. Yeah, he had sage. He had he like, you know, the, the juice drinks. Uh, and so he and this woman who started this meditation center were just like totally vibing. He was like really into it. And so um, we we went and uh, we laid down together. We had like a 50 minute uh, meditation together. 
uh, which which is unusual for like these kinds of things because you're not talking at all. Like you know, I think I think he fell asleep at one point. I think I fell asleep at one point. It's like you know, you're really like deep and relaxed. Uh, I don't know if it was the the crystal, but there was it was good energy. Uh, and then we talked a little bit more, and uh, and then we went our separate ways. But it's you know, the talks are fun because it's like these two minute like larks, right? And and I think it's probably a little bit more fun for for the like celebrities when it's a celebrity kind of piece. Uh, you know, you're not doing the normal stuff. We're not trying to grill you. Usually we're just trying to like see a real person in a real situation. Um, sometimes funnier or sometimes more contrived than, than others. Sometimes we just follow someone when they're going about, you know, their usual thing. Um, but uh, it's, it, you know, you kind of get these little two hour, you know, three hour, sometimes longer, you know, little views into into someone's life and how someone interacts with the world. Whether it's a talk or not, whether it's at the New Yorker or not, is there any any of your stories that you look back on and you, that we haven't talked about and you're just like, what? That was, and I don't want to say cool, crazy, whatever, but like something that still you just kind of go, I can't believe this is my job. I, I mean, there are like the celebrity things. There are, um, you know, the 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 cool events that you get to do. Like I got to go backstage at the NBA draft. Um, we we had like a, we did a what we call a portfolio. So these kind of uh, artist, like art photographer, a high fashion photographer who who would who took pictures of people right after they got drafted in their suits and everything. And I was helping to interview and coordinate. Um, I mean, th- those things are cool. And like going to the Final Four, I was at the Villanova North Carolina Final Four. They went on the bu- went on a buzzer beater. It's like right in front of me, and I'm like, this is this is great. Uh, that was when I was at the LA Times. I think it's more now it's, it's more of like the opposite end. It's like the smaller stuff that, that they let me do. And is just total fun lark. Uh, like, I think my favorite story at the New Yorker is uh, this was like during the height of COVID New York had this thing where they shut down a bunch of residential streets. They would just barricade it off and like give people the run of the street. Uh, so it's kind of great. Like in my street, I'm across from a little park. They shut it off. The firefighters would sometimes come and like you know open the fire hydrant. It felt very like old. That still happens. Old That's New not York like just from the, the movies in the '50s and stuff. On a hot day, fireman comes out, cranks it open. It felt like that, and and that's not how it usually feels. Anyway, in a neighborhood nearby, uh, there was a, a rogue Mr. Softy ice cream man who would like plow over the barricades and was just like terrorizing the neighborhood. Um, and so we had the idea of like, what if I just treat this, like, you know, this is Watergate, like get to the bottom of this, find out who it is. And so they just let me run around the neighborhood, like interviewing people and like pretending, um, um, you know, like some, some big detective. Uh, and you know, it's, it's just like, uh, it's hard to not to just like laugh and like, just like giggle throughout the whole thing. I found like, you know, the, the, the Mr. Softy distributor who's like, we got to take care of this guy. We got to get him out. And, and then I ended up finding the guy himself. Like I was going to go bike around the neighborhood to try to find the rogue Mr. Softy guy. And as I'm heading out, I hear the music. Like I hear the music going and he's parked right in front of my apartment. And so I went out, I went out and talked to him and he, you know, denied all responsibility, blamed it on some other guy. Uh, but it, it's kind of stories like that where it's like, it, it, it's it's a cool position to be in when they're like, you know how to have fun and make something fun and funny on the page. And you have you have kind of a, a, a pass to just go around and amuse yourself. 
and uh, to, you know, to try to have maximum fun. It sounds to me like you've tapped into their their brand, their identity, who they are. You know, earlier, and and, and it's kind of like we trust Zach, and so you know, obviously, you have to pitch things. They get okayed, not okayed, but they really see you know in you somebody who can execute these ideas and not just you know have the ideas. You said something earlier that kind of stuck out to me, and uh, about you know being in sports writing out west, and then you know how the sports writing landscape in the game has changed significantly from you know obviously from when Bill Bill Plasky at Co. We're getting into it to where we are now. And something kind of went off, and and it's it seems to me, it sports there, there's now like a just a gl- much more glaring. I don't. The change is that I think there's much more sports commentary that is that is allowed in, and often maybe maybe sometimes given the same value as what traditional journalism might have been, and that kind of muddies those waters there. And like you're saying, am I a journalist? Am I am I, am I writing a sports column? Am I doing this? But this intersection of the New Yorker is kind of like if it's interesting and relevant and, you know, we can put our spin on it, uh, then we're going to take a swing at it to complete the sports metaphor. But that that kind of jumped out at me because I was thinking to myself, obviously not being a big time J myself or a writer or anything. I'm like, God, it seems to me like there's just no dearth of sports information coming out there. But there's there's a fine line between calling something journalism or commentary or even analysis. So when moving forward, do you see yourself ever, ever kind of sticking in a certain vein or do you love this life of, I don't know, wherever, wherever the wind is carrying me at the New Yorker this month? I, I think more the latter. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm staying here as long as they'll let me. Uh, what, and what are some, what are some, what, hold on real quick. What are some stories that you, that, that, that you can actually say you want to go after, but you don't have to tip your hand. I'm not asking you to do it because the dozen people that are going to listen to this, I don't want to climb up the food chain. Uh, but what are some like things out there? They're like, I'd love to check that out or that out, or even some musings that are on the brain. I, I you know, it, it's tough when, when you're writing about sports now, and I, I don't, I don't only write about sports, but no, not uh, you. that's just your kind of roots. Yeah. In mind. But, but it's, it's tough now. Like you mentioned, there's so much commentary and also so much, uh, athlete generated stuff. Like if I want to know about an athlete and I'm an athlete, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let my fans know from me, you know, I want to control the narrative. Was it the it may be distorted. Athletic, it may, you know, they have their own independent players journal, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's, well, there's the athletic, which is more kind of typical journalism. Then there's, there's the player's tribune. Is that, is that what it's called? That's Derek what Jeter. Yeah. The one, I think yeah. Derek Jeter, whoever he was the yeah. first one. They're like, yeah. Um, so, and the same thing for a lot of celebrities, it, it's getting harder and harder to do this kinds of profiles. Because if I'm a celebrity, there's less upside to letting you in um, because I can't control it. And so it, I think maybe even 10, 20 years ago, we would approach someone and say, hey, we're the New Yorker. We want to profile you. And they'd say, yeah, because, uh, you know, it's great visibility. Usually we're smart, fair and accurate. Um, and uh, uh, these days, uh, there's less of that. Um, so, so really it's, it's like the, the live stories. It's, it's, it's story. My first bigger magazine piece was on robot umpires. Um, it's really like, I find sports to be really funny. Like I love baseball. Baseball is my, my, my love. And I get really, really into it. And, 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 you know, my wife makes fun of me because I, I will be like living and dying by by these games but at the same time i recognize that like baseball where the managers wear the funny pants you know they wear the tight pants and 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 umpires they got their little brush and they like you know kind of daintily brush off the plate 
it's hilarious. And I think it's those kinds of things. It's the things that kind of give you a window into into people, into humanity, and to kind of make you laugh um, and, and not take itself too seriously. The thing I'm working on or, or, or would like to work on right now is is uh, someone had pitched in one of these ideas meeting uh, doing a truck, uh, doing doing a, a piece on on monster trucks on Monster Jam, the circuit. Um, it's still around. So, what's that? It's still alive. Bigger than ever. Uh, door. Yeah, yeah. They 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 are they're global. They'll go to like Stockholm and 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 South Africa, and they ship the big trucks on 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 even bigger ships. Uh, and uh, so I love that. It, yeah, it, it, and I think there's like. You know, I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet, and even if it's fully going to happen. But it's it's like it tells you something about about people and about America and like why why we love the big trucks and seeing the big trucks crushing the little cars and doing flips and stuff. It's it's it, I know I, I I think it's amazing, and I'm glad that it exists, and I want to kind of explore and unpack why <laughs> why why we're into this. So you just you introduced a third. A third C. I live in three is the magic number. There's all sorts of things, and I, I talk in threes cadence. I love it. But I was talking about you know commentary, and then there's competition. But what you're kind of getting at is sports culture, the culture around these activities, and how they do draw. I said I talk about it all the time. There's no greater parallel in my life than a round of golf. You can you can draw analogies to anything. You know, uh, you know trials, tribulations, life, death. You know all sorts of stuff. And it seems to me that's kind of that's where your brain operates too. I, by the way baseball i mean from why are we still like why are we still dressing like ball, ballerinas and like over the years how it went from the super baggy uniforms which because everybody was on roids well oh, don't show my muscles to now they're they're painted on man they are painted on and does leo mazzoni the, the old pitching coach for the braves back when i was growing up we'd laugh all the time like why is he wearing stirrups sir you haven't thrown a baseball <laughs> in 25 years but traditions tradition and I, I i go on a whole spiel sometimes about traditions versus foundation i'm like is it really tradition is it, is it foundational to the game or is this just something we're doing to keep alive so robot umpires though what what's i mean because in baseball right now i love like the pitching clock the hitting clock talk, hearing these guys talk about we go back to golfers and their ceos max scherzer you know, when they, when, when he was going as deep as he was recently about how like, oh yeah, I used to my advantage. If a batter's making me upset, I might hold off. I might hold the ball. I might make him stand, get in the box. And then you have to stand there and look at me for 10 seconds. I know he himself is, you know, the center of his own universe. He's a member of a team, but he, these high profile athletes are CEOs and they are smart. Like Dustin Johnson gets overlooked all the time because he's big, big and hunky and he talks slow and he's from South Carolina. These guys are smart. They're savvy. So what do you see coming down the pipeline for, uh, for baseball, whether it's robot umpires, shot clocks, what what have you, what are you, what do you, what's your thoughts on the status of baseball and its direction? I love the pitch clock. I huge fan. I like the shift ban, uh, not as much as I love the pitch clock, but anything love. to make it faster. And the thing I liked, I, I, if you know, I didn't tip my finger on the scale too much. But I think if you read if you read the robot umpire piece, I I am a skeptic. I I do not like it. Um, but I did like their thought process. I thought they were doing this. Like it's it seems like it's probably going to happen. They're experimenting with it in the minors. They're probably going to bring it to the majors eventually. Um, I thought they were doing this for accuracy's sake. You know, you don't want to you don't want to lose a game because you know. The guy should have walked in the third inning and 
you know, ended up getting called out on strikes. Um, I like that. I, th- I, I don't, I, sports is not important enough where we're like, we have to get it right. And I think there's gambling now, people want to get like the right quote unquote outcome because there's money on it. And, you know, if they bet right based on the numbers, but got screwed by an umpire, they're gonna be mad. I don't care about that because I don't really bet. I, I like, you know, when, when you get screwed and you have something to complain about because it kind of, you know, it, it, it gives you <laughs> something to latch on to instead of just being like, my team sucks. Uh, I like when you win and you kind of get to, you know, you have a little shitty grin and say, yeah, we won because because you got screwed. I like that. I think it's just, we're, 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 what are we watching sports for other than to have something to talk about? Um, I understand if you're a player and, you know, there's money on the line, uh, but I'm not. And we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for the fans because that's where the money comes from. So I'm not a big robot umpire fan. I also just love the arguments. Like if, if there, there's already way fewer arguments, but like I, I go back and watch old argument videos as like a hobby. It's they're great. First the team, lip reading first videos. Team all, first team, all argument, Bobby Cox, again, my Braves guy after 20 some odd years, he, and you talk to some of these managers, you hear them tell, tell the stories later. They weren't upset about a call. I mean, there's a great scene. There's a great scene, and I think it's uh, it's Bull Durham or one of the movies where he's like, "Throw me out of the game. Throw me out of the game." Right? It's all they're playing chess half the time. Where okay, my guy was out at home, but damn it, we are down by five runs. We haven't gotten shit together in you know three weeks. This is the closest we've come, and these guys are going to be deflated if something doesn't happen. So you go and you toss yourself on the on the funeral pyre. But to watch the umpires and then the bumping of the chest and the kicking of the dirt. Yeah, you know, spittle flying out. I had the Bull Durham that interaction. I think the one that you're talking about. I I think I referenced that in the piece where there's all these little rules. Like you can say like I think the Bull Durham thing was like you're allowed to say that something was like a cock sucking call, but if you call the umpire a cocksucker himself, it's like no, you're out of here. There's all these little rules, and they're just like they're two guys. They're stressed out. You know, they're two stressful jobs: a manager and an umpire. And they're just trying to get through the day in a lot of cases. You know, they have 162 of these. They're hot. They're tired. They're stressed. They're like both, you know, they're both just trying to navigate through the day. And I find that really relatable. I want to see somebody do a a series of office interactions like that. You and I at the Xbox machine. And we, you know, you sent your document first. No, I sent my first. Then we just go back and we start like. Rip off your hat. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I take your tie and I yank it down. Uh, Sorry, you're about to go somewhere. So I, I am, I am anti robot umpire, but I thought they're doing it for accuracy's sake. And really they're doing it to control. Like this is another variable that they can control. They want a faster paced game, which I'm all for. They want a more athletic game. So less walks and home runs, but more balls in play, people diving, people running, which I'm all for. They kind of want like, you know, the eighties style of baseball that they think is like the most entertaining. And I think they're probably right. So they're trying to get to that. So they think that they can, if 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 a, if the umpire is automatic, if it's a robot, they could shrink it a little bit or manipulate it in a way that gives them more base hits, fewer walks, fewer strikeouts. And, and I think that's that's good. I, I, I prefer to have the real human umpire, but I think their head is in the right place. Like they're trying all these things to to try to make the game faster and more entertaining. I don't like it. I want the human. I want the human element. Call me old school if you want. Uh, no, this is actually. I got to go back and find that piece and see and see which what you were referencing with the bull Durham because you're right. All the little. I used to work in middle school, right? And I was in the dean's office one year, and I remember more than once a student would say, "No, no, no, no. I didn't say she was a bitch. I said she was acting like a bitch." And I'm like, 
it's a difference. There's, a, know, there's a subtle I difference. Know. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you know, he's got a point here. <laughs> uh, no, we could do this all day. As a matter of fact, I could do this all day and you are too generous that you wouldn't cut me off. Uh, but Zach, I would love to have you on again in a couple months, check in with you from time to time, see what's going on up there, what stories you're kind of peeking at. And also you are a wonderful lens for culture. And I mean that sincerely where if you don't, if you don't, if you don't follow him now, find him, where do people find you besides the New Yorker? Are you anywhere on social media that they can just tap into? Good man. Not Smart really. Man. I've got a Twitter, but I'm, I'm just a lurker at this You're point. A You're a warrior. Yeah. That's, but that's find him at the New Yorker. If it, he has reason enough to subscribe. And uh, before I let you go, do you, are you ready? I mean, I, I run, I run everybody through my gauntlet. James Lipton was the best person to ever do interviews outside of Dan Patrick, in my opinion. And he always ended with these questions. I toss out one because, quite frankly, I don't care what your favorite curse word is. Everybody uses a demeaning female term or some version of the F word. We're just going to skip right over that. <laughs> but then I will cut you loose and let you get back to, to doing your thing, to writing, to editing, to telling stories. And nobody, I mean, I mean this sincerely, nobody does it better. If you need a pick-me-up, if you need a, huh, if you need something that you're going to share with a friend, find Zach Hellfan. Zach, are you ready? Let's do it. All right. What is your favorite word? Okay, I promise I have answers for everything other than this, but I don't have a favorite word. All the words are good words, except for a couple bad words. And we all know what they are. What is your least favorite word? Okay, I think it's it's got to be either myriad, because there's no reason ever to use myriad. And everyone uses it wrong. It's not supposed to be myriad of, it's just me. It's like several, like myriad X. But that sounds terrible. And, and there's no reason to just say lots of or something. You know, it's, it's those words I don't like. Myriad or, or like ubiquitous. I, I used ubiquitous in, a, in, a, in the lead of a story I wrote in Baltimore, the Baltimore Sun. And I think I also said like something was everywhere and ubiquitous, which was, you know, redundant. Uh, and my editor, a guy named Ron Fritz, made fun of me for the rest of the summer, rightfully so, for using ubiquitous to try to sound smart. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think it's ambiguity, complication. I like uh, I like things that aren't clear cut that you kind of have to think about and don't fall neatly into into boxes. What turns you off? The, the opposite. It, 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 things that are feel too categorical, feel too too defined. People, you know, people that say like. This thing is X. Well, tell me, you know, the things that this thing does or the qualities of this thing and let me decide for myself. What sound or noise do you love? Birds. Bird song. Love love the masters, piped in, artificial, natural, I don't know, but but yeah, bird song. What sound or noise do you hate? Horns. And helicopters, which I get a lot of, like car horns. I mean, uh, I, I live in New York, so so it's constantly you know people honking as they someone's double parked and they can't get by, and I'm just trying to do my work here. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I I part of the reason I like being a writer and a journalist is is I get to cosplay different professions every few weeks um because I, I i bounce around all the time like if if i weren't a writer and if i didn't just sell out uh I, I, there there's so many things that that i like find interesting for like a brief period of time 
like uh, recently it's like oh, i would have loved to have been an archaeologist maybe i should have been an archaeologist um reading some archaeology books i'm like sounds great uh a doctor but like not the med school residency thing just you know to kind of be a, a someone who knows a lot about the body and medicine uh a neuroscientist i thought i wanted to be a neuroscientist for a while because the brain is fascinating um so there's a bunch but i guess recently if i had to pick one archaeologist that's that's what it is today what profession would you not like to do um that's that's a that's a good question um I mean, probably like finance, which, which is what I was going to do. Uh, there's a reason it pays really well. And well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is because like, it's not that fun. You know, it's, it's fine. The hours are too long and you'd feel bad about yourself. And last, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I just wanted to say that, you know, your buddies and your families here and, you know, go, go hang out with them. Well, Zach, Lord willing, you and I will be there sometime later, much, much later down the line of history. <laughs> I really appreciate all the time that you've already given. And I'm going to go ahead and preemptively say thank you for some future interview. I'm going to bug you for down the line. You got it. Thanks, bud.